this morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 3 again. Uh, so if you would turn there, and when you get there, you can uh, actually stand up again because we're going to read it together. So Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 17 through 21. If you would uh, please stand with me as we read God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask at this time that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your truth, that you would speak to us the words that you have for us today. We're grateful for this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our heavenly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself." This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now, Paul begins this morning by saying, join in imitating me. And yet, last week, as we read, we saw that he had said that he has not already obtained perfection. He hadn't already obtained that for which Christ had taken hold of him. And so why would we imitate Paul? The simple answer is that because he is walking the walk. If Paul had said, you know what, I have it all together, everybody do just what I'm doing, well, we would think of that, we would look at that guy and think, well, there's no way. He's just a big hypocrite. But Paul is humble enough to understand his weaknesses. His faith is also strong enough to understand that the Lord can use him in spite of those weaknesses. If you want to become a great football quarterback, do you think you would watch the Cleveland Browns play football? No. Would you study the great quarterbacks of football? Would you watch the Patriots? Would you watch a Manning or a Brady or a Montana or a Namath? It kind of works like this in everything that we do. If you want to be a great musician, we don't just spend time reading a bunch of notes, do we? You spend time watching the masters, learning what they've done to excel in their craft. You know, oftentimes we have the instructions, but we lack the execution. You know, have you ever tried to fix yourself something that was broken? And you didn't know where to start. Would you rather read about how to fix it, or would you rather watch it yourself? Now, these days, this is incredible. You can see, you can find on YouTube a video on how to fix pretty much anything in the world. And yet, oftentimes, watching a video of someone else doing something uh, is a little bit easier said than done. I have successfully repaired my washing machine two times. However, I have also successfully spent five hours trying to replace a $40 part on my car, 
and winding up breaking a $300 part and getting a $600 repair bill in the process. But that 15-minute video looked so easy, right? Well, who is it in life that I can imitate? Who is it that I can walk in their footsteps? Who is it that I can look up, I look up to them and I see their habits and their patterns and I respect and I admire them? I don't just know them from afar, but I see them in person. You know, the Christian faith works like this. I've had several very influential people in my life, not people that I just knew about, but people that I've known personally to set a great example for me. People like my father. People that have poured into me when I was a middle school and high school student. People that poured into me when I was a college student. Uh, having Randy here for almost 11 years and getting to watch every day what he does. Not just to watch him on Sunday morning and see how he preaches, but to watch him go about his life of faithfulness. Commentator R. Kent Hughes writes that those who pursue Christ will produce those who pursue Christ. Those who pursue Christ will produce those who pursue Christ. Now, there's a term for this in, when it comes to faith. You know, passing along, sharing our faith is more easily caught than it is taught. People can look at other people's lives. We can look at the lives of those we respect and admire, and we can understand that, yes, it is actually possible to live a life of faith. Now, why does Paul encourage us to imitate these good examples? Well, the answer is because we also have plenty of examples of people we shouldn't imitate. Previously, Paul had warned against the legalistic Judaizers. These were only interested in the appearance of righteousness. And now the warning is coming from the opposite side of the spectrum. These are the sensualists, the libertines, those who are walking, as Paul says, as enemies of the cross. And their lifestyles are speaking the very opposite of the faith that they allegedly hold or perhaps once held. And while they may say, I follow Christ with their words, we look at their actions and see something altogether different. See, sinful behavior often jumps from one extreme to the other. It's like the pendulum swinging, going from extreme legalism to extreme licentiousness. And why is he warning about these guys? Well, this is serious. He says that they're headed to a dangerous place. You look there, it says that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. Now, before we get too far into this, let me tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying that it is wrong to enjoy good food. You know, food was meant to be enjoyed. We, I have family in South Carolina, and they have a barbecue restaurant. And one of the signs on their, uh, one of the slogans on their sign was, you know, if God wanted us to be vegetarian, why did he make meat taste so good? You know, just yesterday morning, we, I spent all day preparing what I thought was going to be some amazingly delicious beef ribs, you know. And when we'd had them out, we seasoned them, we get the smoker going, we put them on. You know, it takes a few hours to have them ready just in time for dinner. And yet, we cooked them for way too long. And, and the only person that enjoyed our beef ribs yesterday was our dog. Okay, because we completely burnt them to a crisp. So this isn't talking just about those who enjoy a good meal from time to time. 
but those who pursue these things above everything else in their life. They obsess over it. They live for it. Their only aim and goal in life is to eat and drink richly and often. The pursuit of pleasure has completely overtaken them. We find out here is that those who pursue pleasure in this world above all else will wind up with none. And the issue is that fulfilling their physical and material desires has become the prime motivator for their life. Here's Hughes again. He says that the pursuit of creature comforts displaced the pursuit of Christ and the cross. Today, the professed Christian whose own physical and personal needs come before the Lord, whose bodily comforts, what and where he eats, how and where he lives, and what he spends to satisfy his own pleasures, displace the cross, had better take note because his God has become his belly. He says, beware of any pleasure that impedes the passionate pursuit of Christ. Beware any pleasure that impedes the passionate pursuit of Christ. So the pursuit of comfort for these people had displaced their pursuit of Christ. And we must understand that this warning isn't just for those in the Philippian church. But what it is saying is that the passion that we ought to have for pursuing the Lord, walking the walk of faith, can become silently subdued. And replaced by other things. And it happens slowly. And it can happen very easily. And there's an infinite number of things that can mute our passion for the Lord by offering us some sort of pleasure or security. Think of our own personal finances. Whether we have any or whether we're lacking. You're looking for security in our account balances. Finding it in our material possessions looking for identity in something that I own, whether it's a phone or a truck or a home or a boat or a wardrobe or a game system. You know, sports fanaticism. And the word fan comes from the word fanatic. Allowing the success or failure of my team to bring me some sense of superiority or inferiority. You know, work, am I what I do for a living? My family, do I look for my self-worth in my spouse or my children? Do I put them on pedestals that they can never live up to, frustrating them and disappointing me? Or do I look for it in personal achievement or relationships or academics or politics and so on and so forth? And it's not that these are bad things. These are just things. And in fact, most of the time we would say that even in fact these could be good things. But even good things can be deadly when we give them the passion that belongs to Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through 12 says that but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What we see here is that the passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. And our passion belongs to Christ because, as we saw last week, he paid for them. He took hold of us. Our hearts and our very being, in fact, now belong to him. 
And as we said last week, we have in fact now become invited to be part of the family of God. Peter says that we're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And he has called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Our rightful place is no longer in any kingdom of the world, but it's now in his kingdom. And this is why Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And there are so many other things that compete for our hearts and minds and souls. This is what Paul is warning us about. He says, be careful about allowing anything else to creep into the center of your life. To offer you the comfort and security and identity that can only be found through Christ. So we have exchanged our citizenship here for something that is far, far better. Now our oldest daughter has a best friend now that lives right across the street from her. This can be really great sometimes. This can be not so great sometimes. Uh, This girl's father also just so happens to be from western Pennsylvania. But she was born in Alabama. Uh, To get on her nerves and just to be a contrarian, she will go around saying, boo, Steelers, go Browns. Okay, boo, Steelers, go Cleveland. It it is one of the most infuriating things I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) And, And he is very kind to her, but... You know, Kaylin, this is one of her best friends, and so she is imitating her friend. And the other day, we were out on the playground, and and she's on the swings, and she goes, Hey, Daddy. I said, Hey, what's up, sweetie? Boo, Steelers, go Cleveland. I I said, Oh, okay, that's fine. It's going to be a lot easier to divide the inheritance by two instead of by three. Now, now aside from contradicting everything I previously said about passion for a sports team, uh, she is not acting as as one who has the privilege of being a Steelers fan. Why would you possibly choose the Browns over the Steelers? When your dad is from Pittsburgh, you have every right to be a Steeler fan, and yet she is walking in the footsteps of the enemy of the black and gold. But, you know, we still have two more daughters, so all is not lost. Um, I start to understand now a friend of mine who says about his two sons that he has an heir and a spare. (laughs) So what I'm saying is be careful of the footsteps that you follow. Why would you walk in the footsteps of an enemy of the cross when your rightful citizenship is in heaven? This is the reason Paul is now in tears. He's mourning over the seriousness of the sin of those who do not realize the danger that they're in. He can't stand to watch as those who claim the name of Jesus fall into the same trap. He knows how it's going to end for them. And the path of the pursuits of pleasure leads only and always to destruction. So Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, what does it mean to be a citizen? Um, As good Southern Americans in a military town, we are very proud, usually, of our status as American citizens. I want to be very cautious then what I say in relation to this and what I'm not saying. Well, the Philippians were also extremely proud of their identity as Roman citizens. To be born in Philippi meant to be born a citizen of the Roman Empire. 
They're full-fledged citizens. There's a great deal of civic pride in this community. They're often called Little Rome. Philippi was progressive and metropolitan, even though they're small. It was a great melting pot of ideals. Remember even that Paul had been born a citizen. And he used his privilege as a citizen to obtain an audience with Caesar, which is is how he wound up in Rome, which is where he writes Philippians from. So Roman citizenship was greatly coveted and was only obtained one of three ways, by birth, as a reward of the emperor, or by paying an exorbitant price. Citizenship in America is thought of much the same way. It is greatly envied. Those who are fortunate... Those who are not fortunate enough to have been born here greatly desire it. And there are great privileges of being an American citizen, just like there are great privileges of being a citizen of Rome. However, because they were seen, they were, because, sorry, Christians were often seen as a political embarrassment to their fellow citizens in Philippi. Because they did not value their Roman citizenship above everything else in their life. So the Christians, they did not worship Caesar as the rest of the Philippians did. Some Romans even called them atheists because they refused to bow down to the emperor. The Christians in Philippi prioritized their place in the kingdom of God above their citizenship in Rome. They were a part of the greatest civilization in the history of the world. And yet they looked for their ultimate security and identity elsewhere. See, they were longing for a better home. The author of Hebrews writes about some Old Testament heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. In verses 13 through 16, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of, thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The author writes, they were strangers and exiles on the earth, desiring a better country. Now, who is he talking about here? Who is the they that he's referring to? Well, just up until this point, Hebrews 11 includes Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. And a little bit later in the same chapter, he includes Joseph and Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all of the prophets, and all of the other examples of their faith. And these were not strangers and exiles because they did not have a country to belong to. And some of them indeed had already inherited the land that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis. They have a great deal of ethnic and national pride in their identity as the children of God. And yet it says they were strangers and exiles on the earth. An exile is someone who is living in a land that is not their own. Why is that? It's because believers obtain their citizenship by the new birth. A Christian has been reborn into a new nation with a new citizenship. And if they have done that, then this world is no longer their home. They have received, as we read in Hebrews 12, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
They live as strangers and exiles on the earth because now they belong to another kingdom. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes in 19 that, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but now we are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, part of his family. Ultimately, this becomes a question about my identity. What is my ultimate primary identity? Am I as passionate about being a citizen of heaven as I am about being a citizen of this nation? And the the idea that Paul is trying to help us understand is simply this. That wherever a Christian lives on this earth, they are pilgrims, refugees, sojourners. A Christian's undivided, unreserved, wholehearted, absolute, complete allegiance belongs to no one and nothing else than to Christ and to his kingdom. Complete allegiance belongs to Christ and no one else. And this doesn't mean that to be a Christian, we can't appreciate our citizenship as an American. It doesn't mean that a Christian cannot enjoy and exercise the privileges of an American citizen. But it does mean that a Christian's wholehearted, unwavering, absolute devotion can never be to any nation or to any flag other than to the banner of Christ. See, they answer to the cross of Christ before the crown of man. The only absolute submission a Christian can give is to Jesus. He writes, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote where he says that if we find ourselves with a desire in this world that nothing can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. See, Christians must rest assured that there is something so much better on the horizon. They should long for a return from their Savior who will bring them into a better kingdom, and not just a little bit better, but a much, much better kingdom. No matter how good we ever have it on this earth, how many comforts we have obtained or surrounded with, we can never escape the reality and limitations of this world. So the abundance of worldly pleasures can never satisfy the desire for pleasure that can only be found in the Lord. It has become now clear over and over again, peace and security and safety and comfort will always be lacking in this world. Let's close now with one final thought. Once I am a citizen, I am always a citizen. See, I cannot lose my citizenship as an American by accident. The only ways I can lose my citizenship are voluntary. Becoming a citizen of another nation. Fighting in a war against my country. Spying on behalf of another nation against my own. I have to intentionally do something to lose it. Now, there are many ways that I can be a bad citizen, but even then, it's still really difficult to lose that citizenship. If I commit a crime and go to prison, I am still a citizen. If I slack off my duties as a husband and a father and an employee, if I disrespect the flag, if I criticize the government, if I dishonor military veterans, I am still a citizen, even if I am a bad one. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one 
will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, the desires for nice things, for good food, for material prosperity, do not disqualify us as, as citizens of heaven. Maybe now we're starting to think about some of the things that have crept into our lives. Perhaps our passion for the Lord isn't what it once was, or perhaps even what it ought to be. But that doesn't mean that we're not citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But it could be that we're not yet experiencing the full life that Jesus has offered. Jesus says that no one can snatch us out of his hand. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came to bring life, and the life that he offers, no one can take away. See, once we are his, we are always his. We have been secured by the blood that he shed on our behalf. So now let us walk this road together by following the example, the godly examples of men and women who go before us, and by providing godly examples of the men and women who would walk behind us. It's like walking up a narrow pass up through a mountain, covered in fog, where all you can see is what's directly ahead of you, a path that leads to our rightful home, that we might not just have life, but have it abundantly and life as it was always meant to be. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this privilege to come to you. Lord, for those who know you and who believe in you, Father, we are grateful for our citizenship, which is found in heaven. And Lord, maybe we are not the best citizens, Maybe we have not done as we ought to have done, and maybe we are not now experiencing the privileges that we ought to be experiencing. But, Lord, we do know that there is hope. That, Father, that those that you have secured are secure forever. Father, we do lift up those to you that even now walk as enemies of the cross. Lord, their passion is for nothing and no one else other than their own comfort their own security. Father, we pray that you would be at work in their hearts and their lives, that they would understand what it means to be forgiven by Christ, that they would see through the godly examples of men and women of faith what it looks like to follow after you passionately. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.